Ladies and gentlemen, uh, good morning and welcome to WED. Very pleased that you could be with us here this morning. Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, your holiday cruise to the emerald beauty of a Puerto Rican rainforest. Now ready for departure. When the crypt doors creak and the tombstones quake, spooks come out for a swing and wake. Happy haunts materialize and begin to vocalize. Grim, grim ghosts come out to socialize. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 589. And I'm here not only to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience, but I also want to bring you a little bit of that Disney magic wherever you are with this podcast, my live video broadcasts every Wednesday night on Facebook, videos, blogs, special events, books, audio tours, and more. Whether it's your first time visiting the parks or you've been hundreds of times, if you're planning your next vacation or love the history, details, secrets, and stories, there is something in the show for you because each week I'm going to take you from the parks to the screens and everywhere in between. If you're a new listener, thank you, welcome. Please go back and check out some or all the past episodes for interviews, top tens, reviews, and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts and find everything else at www.radio.com. So this week, we're going to look at one of the most interesting, unique, yet obscure, unbuilt Disney parks, the Disney MGM Studios Burbank. That's right. In the mid-1980s, officials from the city of Burbank, California, worked towards an agreement with Disney to build a theme park, retail, dining, a hotel, and a studio in their downtown district. So we're going to explore the early genesis of the idea, the dream, the Imagineers, whose names you might recognize, who worked on the project, the storyline, and a very detailed look at what exactly this complex was going to include including some very odd concepts, to say the least. Of course, we're also going to find out what problems caused this not only to never be built, but led to a long time, possibly still ongoing, feud for the Disney company. We'll also look at the overall aftermath and what ideas survived. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show as I'll have more information about our next WW Radio virtual meet of the month, how you can help, how I can help you, your voicemails and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. In our continuing look back at some of the Disneys that never were, and I mean we talked about the Beastly Kingdom in the Walt Disney World that never was back on show 481, the World Showcase that never was way back on show 105, 
the Epcot Center that never was back on show 10, going back almost 15 years, Cypress Point Lodge, the Lost Resorts of the Magic Kingdom, uh, the Muppets in Walt Disney World, Roger Rabbit. There's also a ton of blog posts about Genesis Garden, the Animal Kingdom Carousel, Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers, Soviet Russia, and lots more. And this week, we're going to explore the Disney park that you probably never heard of. It wasn't planned for Orlando, Anaheim, Virginia, St. Louis, or even somewhere overseas. In fact, it was going to be right where the studios already exist in Burbank, California. And joining me once again is a returning guest, fellow Disney history geek, or is it nerd? I'm not really sure what the correct term is. Longtime friend and blogger and editor over at WW Radio. She is Kendall Foreman. Kendall, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. Obviously, I must not have been a total spaz the first time I was on, <laughs> if you're willing to have me back on. Right, because but, we, we... Yeah, I'm glad to... We Glad to about, come back and talk about Burbank. Yeah, because we, we talked a lot about some of the parks that never were. Um, and I think a lot of them were very familiar. So back on show 558, Kendall and I talked about the unbuilt Disney parks at Mineral King, St. Louis, Texas, Chicago, Disney's America in Virginia, Port Disney, Westcott, and the SS Disney. But there's one that we left out that is really, I think, a lot more obscure and unique, and you'll hear why for lots of reasons, and it's the Disney MGM Burbank Studios, and yes, you heard that correctly, because in the 80s, not long after Disney said they were going to be building their own studio in Orlando, which obviously became Disney MGM Studios, Hollywood Studios, Disney said they'd be doing the same thing with the twist or three in Burbank, and let's just say let the games and the fireworks and the drama and the studio wars uh, begin. Yeah, absolutely. I think this was just a convergence of a couple different important factors that just all happened at the same time that, you know, Disney had this idea and Orlando happened to be the place that MCA and Universal was looking at to move in on their turf and Burbank was desperate for someone to come in and help them with this plot of land and just all those factors just got in the pot together and stirred the pot and made the drama and led to this crazy idea. Yeah. And, you know, what might have been, I think, is very interesting. And we'll sort of really uh, we'll dig deep into that. And as you'll hear it all definitely bears the handprints of not just people like Michael Eisner, but some other well-known Imagineers as well. And I think we sort of need to put this whole thing in a little bit of context, right? Because clearly when Eisner and Wells took over, obviously a lot of their focus was very much on the movies, right? They brought a lot of their studio experience with them and they really wanted to try and get the Walt Disney company, Walt Disney studios back into that level of prominence. And I think dominance in, in the film business, which was not necessarily, you know, doing the best that it had done in history. They had a couple of uh, flops some very expensive ones and they really wanted to get the studio is sort of back on the forefront. But I think that that 
studio mindset for Eisner and Wells really helped them extend uh, what they wanted to do in terms of the theme parks, obviously not just places with Disney MGM studios in Orlando, but what they wanted to do on the West coast as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think this was something that was kind of in the Imagineers mind, even prior to this also, um, if I remember back, I think there's been a couple times where Jim Corcus has been on the show where he's mentioned that this was something they wanted to incorporate in Future World at Epcot, too. That they had kind of a a film-centered pavilion there, and that just never came to be, and it kind of got sat on the shelf until they started developing ideas with regards to MGM Studios in Orlando as a whole. And, yeah, I mean, it was relatively quick after Eisner came in. I, I think there's documents showing at a shareholders meeting where it was within four months after him coming in where they announced the the uh, MGM Studios park there in Orlando so yeah it was something they wanted to get moving on relatively quickly yeah there was this idea for a a movie pavilion in Epcot which would have been located um, you know think about where in between the land and imagination might have been and Eisner's like look there's no way we can cram this entire industry into a single pavilion. This really needs to be something that is going to eventually become its own full day park. Clearly when the Disney of gym studios opened, it only had five attractions for the first couple of months before Indiana Jones was built that summer, but he had the vision of doing that. But all these things too, from a more of a, a 30,000 foot view really helped to ignite the, the studio wars um, that existed between Disney and universal. And, you know, I think really, you know, universal sort of fired the first shot, right? Because MCA, who was the owner of universal at the time said, look, we're going to bring our studio tour that has done so well in California we're going to bring this out to Orlando, where Disney clearly had been dominating for a long time. And Disney's like, oh, that's great. We'd love to have them here because anything that brings more visitors into Orlando is great. But really what Disney's thinking is, OK, if, if you're going to come out here, we're going to do the same thing and step on your turf out in California. Yeah, and it goes all the way back to, I think it was 1981, where MCA, the parent company for Universal, they bought land in Orlando and they kind of were sitting on it and they have, you know, some funds, but they're not wanting to go all on their own against Disney established in Orlando. So they approached Paramount and looked to them as to potentially being a partner for building this, you know, additional tram tour theme park. At that point, they're not quite sure what they want it to be. And in 1981, Michael Eisner was still president at Paramount. So there's some debate and, and contention as to whether or not Michael Eisner was sitting in on this meeting. Um, some records show he was on the agenda that he was there. The, the president for MCA says he can't remember for sure if he was there, but he thinks he probably had to be there when he saw these plans in 1981. Well, it ends up Paramount you know, turns them down and MCA is not able to find a partnership for a period of time. They're continuing to sit on the land. Uh, Eisner moves over to Disney. Like I mentioned really, really quickly after he moves over, they announce the MGM tour. And so now it's like shots fired both ways. You know, 
Universal tries to move into Disney's turf, and now Disney tries to beat him to the punch. And then this opportunity presents itself in Burbank of this plot of land that's been sitting there empty. Uh, they were hoping Burbank, the city council, was hoping that there was going to be able to be this town center mall going on this, this spot, but nothing's happened with it. And at a city council meeting, uh, one of the councilmen just offhandedly comments, well, maybe we should ask Disney to dream a dream for Burbank. And, well, one of the ladies on the city council happened to previously be the mayor of Burbank. And I guess she just had Eisner's number in her, her uh, Rolodex, I guess it would have been at that point in time. And she gave Michael Eisner a call and said, hey, we, you know, we're kind of interested about having Disney potentially do something in Burbank. And, of course, word gets out about this relatively quickly. So now Universal feels another shot fired. You're trying to move in, you know, five to ten miles from our current studio tour. But Disney's feeling like, hey, this is just a shot back because you're trying to move <laughs> right. in on our land. <laughs> and and it's funny because the, you know, they reach out to Eisner. Eisner comes back and is excited, excited and excitable as Eisner reportedly had been. And, and it's you know, sketching stuff down on napkins, but it was never really a slam dunk. You know, the the the, the Burbank mayor and councilman wasn't sure if this was really in alignment with what they wanted. And then he goes home and he talks to friends and relatives and his wife and everybody's like, just give it time. Let's, you know, let, let's see what happens um, and maybe even play a little bit of hardball with disney who's like look we have other places that in a heartbeat would take this sort of opportunity and give not just this plot of land but the entire city really a, a huge influx of tourism traffic and revenue so he eyes are sort of spins it like look you guys are lucky that we are thinking about doing this and it worked to their advantage because Disney ends up striking a deal and really getting this uh, prime real estate for like next to nothing. Like it was do it was like a dollar store deal to get real this plot of real estate in Burg Burbank. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny because if you go back to our other show we did where we talked about text position, they Disney had produced a video or or produced it in conjunction with Dallas, I'm not sure, but of basically the city of Dallas begging Disney to come build text position there. And so they ended up showing this video to the mayor of Burbank and the city council. And that's finally when the mayor comes around and feels like, wow, you know, these other cities are begging for people, for Disney to come and build something in their city. And here we are, you know, kind of playing coy, hard to get. And I think his quote actually was, yeah, here we are playing hard to get and any other city would have given their eye teeth for a Disney project. <laughs> that was from the city manager of Burbank. And yeah, it ends up that Burbank unanimously approves it. And I think they got it for like 57 cents a square foot or something like that. This, you know, little section of land along the I-5. Right, like 40 acres for a million dollars, which, like you said, was really pennies on the dollar and you're right they took a lot of the inspiration from what 
Tech's position might have been with the shops and the shows and just a few rides and entertainment for things to do, you know, for families during the day. And at night, it would sort of almost switch over to uh, an adventurous club and a party boat and all these types of. So it was sort of wear multiple hat and serve multiple masters. So it, it looked great on paper with that inspiration. And again, Disney made sure like, OK, if we strike this deal Burbank is not allowed to negotiate with anybody else while we are sort of putting together these plans. Like they give us six months, but you are not allowed to negotiate with anybody else. And at the end of 12 months, if anybody is dissatisfied, either anybody can can pull out of the deal. Um, and, you know, it seemed at the beginning, Kendall, like everybody was on the same page. Everything was copacetic, a lot of kumbaya um, but it was not necessarily, um, I don't think it was necessarily a marriage that either was 100% comfortable with. Yeah, you can go back and find some things from the LA Times where they talked about, you know, the mayor went there to Glendale to see what the Imagineers had ready. And and he, he walked out overwhelmed and felt like, wow, where was where was the stuff that we had originally talked about wanting? And it even goes so far as the beginning of the proposal or presentation that the Imagineers and Eisner gave to the Burbank City Council once they had kind of a plan in place, it's really funny to hear Joe Rohde when he steps up because he says, you'll find as we get further and further into this that we get into, I suppose you have to admit, crazier and crazier ideas until finally we're at ideas that a person might say, I'm doubtful if I want that in my community. <laughs> I I have doubts about that. That's it, to me that was just hilarious to hear him say, you know, in a, we're presenting this to you, trying to get you to agree to it, trying to get you to buy in, and I'm just going to admit right out, there's going to be some of you who aren't going to like any of what we have planned here. Yeah, and and they, you know, this was not a a, a very easy handshake deal. Um, you know, reports from newspapers say that there were nine different drafts of an agreement before a deal was struck. And then once it was, Eisner tells the city council, look, this is your problem. But then he sort of walks out and says to the media, like, we think this is still going to be feasible because the issue isn't what it's going to cost, but it's whether we can deliver the dream financially. So I think Eisner knows right off the bat that this is not necessarily something that they are sure they're going to be able to execute on, not just in terms of vision, but in terms of resources and, you know, finances. Yeah, I mean, I think they very quickly kind of run into the problem that we talked about before with places like this, that, you know, what areas are gated? What do you charge an entry fee for? You know, how do you, how does Disney make money off of locations that are, are retail that are owned by outside sources? Like those are all things that were playing into that, that they had run into issues with already with regards to the tax position project and with, or, you know, or kind of overlapping with this, with tax position and Chicago, both that it's that same situation of how does Disney coexist in an area that's not solely theirs. Yeah. And, and how it's, do they find a profit? Right. And, and, you know, I think that was something that they, 
they ran the numbers early on and, and said that they can do it, but they very quickly had to turn their intention to, all right, what what does this dream actually look like? What are we envisioning this to be? Um, and how do they sort of break up these 40 acres in terms of, you know, retail and themed entertainment and quasi theme park experience for families? And then what is it going to look like at night? And they turn to two young-ish Imagineers whose names you may recognize. One is Joe Rohde, who needs no introduction, and Rick Rothschild, who for years did a lot of work uh, at Disney. Uh, he was the writer and director for Soren, did a lot of stuff over at California Adventure, Tough to be a Bug, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, Fill Our Magic, uh, you know, a lot of different attractions with Disney. Um, he also worked on Captain EO, Star Tours. So again, incredibly creative folks that they bring in. And it's interesting because the, the again, some of the reports say that when the, the, their mission was to integrate a Disney themed and a Disney like experience into this urban downtown environment and they used to go to some of the nearby buildings and go to the top floors and look out from windows or the roofs to try and get an, an idea of what they were going to do with this you know landlocked ish 40 acre parcel of land yeah and i mean this was very definitely in in downtown burbank i mean there were residents that were going to be across the street from this. There was a high school that was off the one corner, which is just kind of mind-blowing to think about, oh, I could step outside my high school and walk over to the Disney park. <laughs> right, you're not going to 7-Eleven <laughs> after school. You're to hang out with your friends. You go into the Disney MGM Burbank Studios. Yeah, and as part of that, I mean, the idea of having kids practically walk right out of the high school is they wanted it to, like you might say, blend seamlessly where, you know, this entry area you know, the heights of it and the storefronts and everything looks more like what was around it. And and that would have been the areas that would have been free for, you know, business people, teenagers, families to come into and shop. And then the further you went in, it took you a ways to get to kind of those crazier ideas, the things that Joe Rohde commented on that, you know, they wanted to hide further in there that, you know, once you get further in, then you get to the gated areas, the things that cost, the things that are more themed and attraction oriented. And part of the deal and really the appeal of the project, too, was to make sure, you know, this was not going to be a place that Disney or the city of Burbank expected people from, you know, Missouri to come fly out to and spend a week at. So first and foremost, it had to serve the people of Burbank, both in design as well as execution. So in terms of actual scale, it couldn't be what Disney normally might do in one of the theme parks. They had to be uh, careful in terms of how it would look in relation, again, because of exactly where it was. But more importantly, it would appeal to the Burbank resident or the the businessman or, or business person in Burbank who'd be able to leave during work or go after work, do a little bit of shopping without having to go, like you said, into the deeper part of this entertainment complex, the, the 
the regular quote-unquote retail shopping area would be at the front. And then as you started to work your way in, that's where the tourist and entertainment districts would sort of lie. Yeah, I mean, I think that front, you know, Magnolia and Third Street Corner was where I think they kind of saw as an entry point for most people. And that was going to be like a big anchor department store. They mentioned, you know, something like Harrods or you think maybe Macy's today, something like that, that, you know, average entry point, non-threatening to the community. And then beyond that would have been kind of, I guess, if we want to dive into the actual, you know, slightly crazier things, but they, the, the whole idea of this whole concept was a back lot. I mean, that was kind of their mythology that they were working with. So even though it's a retail environment, even though it's kind of a park community environment, they wanted it to have this back lot theme to it. And they, they kind of go back and forth in their presentation about what exactly how this backlot came to be, but the the longer, more convoluted story was that it was a gold rush town, and eventually the gold ran out, and so the residents decided, well, what are we going to do now? And they ended up deciding to make movies. I'm not sure how you get from, like, the 1800s to when you... At, that part was left out, how you get from mining gold to making movies. Well, I mean, I just, they built... I think timing-wise, so remember, you know, during that time, it used to be where when a movie was being made, they used to have to construct these huge backlot environments. You know, now they either use CGI or they do stuff on location. So, and, and to be clear, this was not an abandoned mining town. This was This was downtown Burbank, but... They were going to build this town as if it was a mining town that was then going to be converted into a movie set, which would eventually become a retail shopping area. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a story on top of a story on top of a story. And yeah, so the, the first one of those backlots was this mining town, and then they would have had other retail areas in other backlot facade fronts. You know, it might it that would sometimes even rotate because their intention was to actually shoot movies on some of these sets. And so it might be ancient Egypt. It might be Italy. It might be uh, Angkor Wat or Machu Picchu or, you know, <laughs> Paris. Any numbers or, of yeah, there was a... that, yes. You know, modern places that you can't find in America or, you know, they specifically mention a lot of times this is why backlot sets were built to recreate places from the past. So a lot of them would have been like the, you know, the gold rush town, the ancient Egypt type idea. But yeah, so beyond that initial, you know, more modern type retail then would have been these back lot sets. And then further in would have been um, the what they call the California Canyon. And then beyond that would have been the additional more attraction oriented uh, spaces. But also in addition to all of that on the, the north end of it, they intended to move the animation studios to this lot also, and the the Disney Channel TV studios. Right. So, and if it sounds a little familiar to something like Pleasure Island, it very much was because that's where it got the inspiration, right? Sort of Pleasure Island, despite, you know, it may be a little bit invisible to a lot of guests when they came, Pleasure Island had its own 
backstory and mythology and reasons for things being there. Even Disney Springs now has that same thing, these buildings that have been there for such a long period of time that have been repurposed. Um, And, you know, they wanted to make sure, too, not to cause any kind of confusion, right? They wanted to make sure that they didn't want people to think, well, this really used to be a studio that Disney used to use, and we need to sort of have a very clear distinction that this was not something created by Disney. We came upon it. It's been there for a long time. I'm sure, like Pleasure Island, that backstory would have gotten lost um, along the way. But you're right. There was this idea of segmenting the areas, and each one is was going to have sort of a uh, a deliberate intention and function, and maybe even to a certain degree, you know, guest attractor. So let's sort of like start breaking down what some of the concepts, because there was a lot of odd stuff. Joe Rody, I'm looking at you because I'm sure that's where it came from. But some of the different concepts and what some of these areas were going to look like, how crazy they were going to get um, and how different each one of them was going to be. Yeah, I mean, once you move past that initial retail into those back lot areas, they mention some specific things of, you know, that main level would have been where you had these storefronts, but they didn't look like storefronts. They looked like back lots. And then when you would walk through the back lot facade, there would be kind of a gap. And then you would actually enter the store, the retail location, which I think is kind of interesting from a business standpoint. It makes me think kind of of, Starbucks on Main Street, mm-hmm. where you have this traditional, you know, retail company that Americans recognize, but it's kind of hidden behind this other facade. And it, it kind of presents an interesting question of how many retailers at that point in time would have been okay with having their traditional storefront blocked. Right. Would have made you, for you, a very you, interesting shopping experience. Right. <laughs> like you can, you know, if you're Disney, you can create a sci-fi dine-in theater where you're entering and you see that they're just sort of facades and props because it's it makes sense in context. But these fake half-finished walls and, I mean, there, it really, there, there was something extremely theatrical about it. And look, they were planning on even sort of using it for performances and stuff at night. So it was going to serve multiple masters, but they would use a lot of these fake set pieces and fake set props to very much integrate into the shopping, you know, the retail and the dining experiences. Yeah. And above this, the first level would have been the second level that they called club heaven. I don't know if they mean by that, that it was literally going to be called club heaven or if it was going to just like, you know, a a non-literal term like this was a club heaven up on this second level because there were so many options but they specifically mention a calypso club up there and a robot club uh, (laughs) where guests would have had the opportunity to control one of the animatronics in the middle of this club and they thought this was going to be great fun for everyone to sit around and watch my immediate thought was thinking of the um the club in Japan that you can go to where you robot <laughs> <Right>. fight. <laughs> I'm not sure they would have had fighting animatronics, but it, I guess that sounds interesting. 
but these clubs would have been entirely separate from the main level. So kind of like what we talked about in St. Louis, where if that's what you were looking for, you could go up to that other level, you know, enjoy the club life, not interfere with the people on the main level, which I'm sure was an appeal to the people of Burbank. Like, you know, this main area that's open to the entire public families and everything like that is going to be more subdued. And up top is where we have more entertainment and, you know, if you're coming to eat your business lunch, you don't have to engage with the crazy stuff that's upstairs. Right, uh, And I think the continuity of the experience that you were going for makes a lot of sense. Right. So that it's not a disruption in terms of what your intention of going there is for. So there would still be um, in this mall like area. Right. They sort of called it the Golden State Mall in this mall like area. There would still be those theatrical elements um there would be you know a a country western area they would use in some old uh, uh locomotive train car as and i'm quoting a cappuccino machine a peanut cooker and a potato roaster but at night the light at the front would light up the stage where they would be giving concerts and different performances there'd be mining so think like big thunder mountain there'd be like a, a mining area somewhere else and streetmosphere uh much like we have at, at disney's hollywood studios disney streetmosphere would appear not just in the retail area but later on in the uh the upstairs um nightclub area but these Different. St- what, one of the things that really appeals to me about this idea is the theming of the streets, right? So it's not just this old Western mining town. Like you said, there could have been, you know, mythical locations, European cities. The Tokyo's Ginza district was one that continued to come up. Um, that for a long time was something that Imagineering had wanted. And I still have to imagine maybe probably still does because no di- good idea ever does. The Ginza district was going to be a planned expansion for the Japan Pavilion um, in some of the early ideas for World Showcase. And then later on in the 90s, they talked about doing an expansion, adding a Ginza district. So that would have satisfied having this idea to have this very vibrant, lively, unique shopping area on the first floor. But again, the second floor would have had clubs and nightclubs that remind me a lot of some of the things that we got in Pleasure Island, right? So almost an adventurous club type of experience, a place that would have a theme towards some of these lost cities that had mystical artifacts that would come to life. You would have historical figures that would be there as part of what they called a cinematic event. So Cleopatra, Mark Anthony, Ben Franklin, they would all be stories. And this, too, reminds me of, and I don't remember what show, but we talked about a a Walt Disney World that might have been but never was in Tomorrowland in Magic Kingdom. They had originally planned for an Explorers Club, which was going to be this sort of hybrid dining nighttime theatrical experience that would have had real historicals from history coming to life there. So I'm, I'm getting elements of that coming in here as well on sort of the the upstairs club level and even a little bit on the lower level shopping district too. Yeah, they definitely talked about this whole idea of shopping as entertainment and that there would have been kind of the, the importance of these personalities 
that would have been there as a part of, of the retail locations and of some of the restaurants, like specifically, you know, the one you're talking about with the train, there would have been this Miss Mona who hosted the restaurant and she was the one who who held the review and had made her fortune on the gold mine and now her you know her bars made of the leftover explosives and and it it gave me very much a feel of you know the adventurers club or also even just to bring it into today what they've done with galaxy's edge where these cast members play a vital role in your experience they've made up their backstories they interact with guests and they make this whole environment an attraction you know the restaurant is an attraction your shopping is an attraction not just you know having a literal ride to go ride right so like one of the areas was this you would enter this storage warehouse where you would be surrounded by all these props that have been up on shelves and on walls that were used in movies that all of a sudden had these you know mystical magical powers that would revive the personalities of the actors that once used them so again you're you're having people like cleopatra or ben franklin coming to life but that also sort of makes me feel like a little bit of mystic manner in hong kong where these inanimate objects and props are actually brought to life and have a little bit of a life of their own and i wonder how much of this storage warehouse idea might have bled over into what they eventually created for Mystic Manor. Yeah, I think there's definitely little bits and pieces you can take from this project. And obviously the ones we talked about in the past that you can, you can see like this inspired something, or maybe it's just kind of their thread they carry all the way through, you know, a lot of their projects. Like it seems like a lot of the things that Joe Rohde's involved with, you know, have a very, um, personality driven immersive you know very a lot of focus put on props on what's placed in view and how they're used and to create this entire environment well and i think to that point and sort of and sort of going off there this was not necessarily meant to be a place that you had to come specifically to shop or dine or you know go late night clubbing so they also designed an area known as California Canyon, which would have been this relaxing area with water features and waterfalls and a stream that would flow throughout this canyon, um, surrounded by two tall structures that would have, you know, offices and restaurants and sort of this California bungalow style. But it was meant to be this sort of, uh, you know, escape from the hustle and bustle of Burbank and even the shopping and entertainment district in um, in the, the club level and the Golden State Mall area. Yeah, just looking at the one concept art of this this California Canyon, this would have been my place. If I lived in Burbank, like you, I, I would have been over there all the time. I'll just find a chair, I'll sit on a corner, I'll listen to the waterfalls and just, you know, spot to relax. Which, and, and I yeah, think, and it was, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's completely free. I mean, just to be able to have that experience, walk in there and have that, you know, type of enjoy, like Disney Springs is now. You know, I, I don't even know how many photos I see of that, the little, the little pond spring area there. Like people obviously enjoy that type of environment. And I think that too was meant to not only satisfy but attract the local Burbankites, the Burbian. 
the people of Burbank, because they didn't have to go in there with the intention to shop or eat, they could just, I mean, that's what obviously what would happen once they got there, but it was something that would also be um, uh, an attractive and attractor area as well for the locals. Yeah, it's like the free sample at Costco. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because look, as a local, I go to Disney Springs a lot, not necessarily, I mean, yes, I always eat, but not necessarily with the intention of eating. It is a place that my family and I can go just to walk around because it is a relaxing place. It's out of the, the theme park hustle and bustle and there's, you know, music and things. But eventually you do get brought into the shopping area or you stop and get a snack or you stay with friends and you go get something to drink. So it makes perfect sense. And I think also the the design aesthetic too was a really nice complement to everything else that was getting built there. Yeah, and I think it's interesting up to this point, nothing that we've mentioned has anything whatsoever to do with Disney. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, none of the retail, none of the storefronts, you know, these experiences were all new, non-IP, as people like to say now, experiences. Up until, you know, further in here where you get to the actual animation department and a couple things that they had planned in conjunction with that. Yeah, and and although it doesn't say so, I mean, I would have to believe that in one of these cornerstone, keystone areas is where we would probably start seeing some Disney being brought in. Because one of the things I think that they were really looking forward to and, and would have really been one of the hallmarks of this area would have been the Hollywood Fantasy Hotel. And the idea, and I love this, by the way, is that each floor of the hotel would be themed to a different genre of film. So depending on what floor, and I don't know if you could ask for a specific floor or how they would actually do it, but I would have to imagine that the hallways, the decor, the, uh, the, the rooms and how they were decorated would all be themed somewhat differently. So think, you know, pirate rooms and royal rooms at um, some of the Walt Disney World resorts sort of being brought into entire floors. And at the top, Joe Rody called the Celestial Diner, quote, the most romantic place to have a meal in the entire West, which I think is saying a lot because it's California, but it was going to have this planetarium ceiling and chamber orchestra. And this sounded like it was going to be a destination dining location. Yeah, this place overall sounds amazing. And and if you watch their the video presentation that they gave to Burbank, uh, Joe Rody mentions one floor that I don't know if this is one they had planned or just one that he was specifically hoping for, but he mentions film noir and you know suggested that it could have been everything in you know gray, silver, half tones, and you know lighting that makes it look like there's the Venetian blind streaks on the walls and and, and yeah, and it all terminates with this you know, amazing sounding restaurant at the top, which they said, you know, didn't have exterior views because of, you know, they said because of pollution in California, you wouldn't have had great views apparently, but they made this planetary ceiling that would have changed throughout the evening. And yeah, I love listening to an orchestra while I dine. So, (laughs) well, and you also look, you know, one thing Disney likes too. look, they build the berms around the park so they can control 
what you see. They can control that environment. Being able to do that inside a restaurant, we are not sort of looking. Look, we go to Disney because we want to sort of escape reality sometimes. And, and by blocking out, looking out the windows and seeing what is happening in downtown Burbank is a great way to keep that escapism type experience happening in a restaurant, which I can only by guess by its description would have been something that might have even been a little bit more on a higher end as well. Um, and, and definitely geared towards, you know, specific types of guests, both locals as well as people who traveled to come to, we'll get to the, the, the theme park entertainment area of the park as well. Yeah. I mean, I think this definitely sounds like it would have been the best restaurant in the area, like that, you know, the highest quality food, probably the hardest reservation to get. And, you know, some of the other more family oriented restaurants were left to the the theme park area. Like they mentioned a star quality diner sounds very similar to a Planet Hollywood would have had movie memorabilia in it. And, and then but it incorporates a, an upper catwalk play area for the kids. <laughs> I don't know if if your if parents are sitting down there eating their food, watching their kids climb on I don't I don't know a jungle gym rope net thing up above in the catwalk. Well, I know Chick Fil A has sure. those little like play areas for kids, yeah, so maybe true. It was a Disney version yeah. of that, but but you're right. This is you know from all the areas that we just talked about, you know this was almost like the coming attraction for the the traditional quote unquote, I'm using air quotes like theme park entertainment area that would have not only incorporated theme park like experiences that we are used to but remember too they're also moving over um, uh, offices from some of the different departments in Burbank so for example the Disney animation department would have moved to a campus that would have been part of this again think Disney MGM Studios which at the time was a working studio and that's where animation and design group used to be housed so now the animation department would have a new campus here but unlike you know closed door buildings elsewhere this would have been open to allowing people to have obviously guided tours there'd be a multiplex theater but sit down because it would have had a museum for the Disney archives, which is something we have all hoped and dreamed and wished for. Yeah, to me, this is one of the most intriguing parts of the whole thing. And it would have been the one that I would have paid the ticket for <laughs> to go in and see that, you know, they specifically mentioned things on Walt's early life, early career, strange Disney, they mentioned, which I think they did like a panel on at Destination mm-hmm. D a few years ago. Uh, animation, old you know, old animation cells, old animation concept art, all of this kind of stuff would have been housed in this museum. And that would have been one of their gated areas that they had that they would have charged a ticket for. Yeah. And you mentioned the the star quality diner um, again with the, with the movie memorabilia, but they also are going to have a soundstage restaurant, which again, there was a soundstage restaurant at one point at Disney MGM studios, But this, they said, would have taken from the mythology of both Disney and MGM. And this is where the first time the mention of 
Disney characters would be found and they would have character meals. So this sounds like more it was geared towards the family friendly Disney type theme park dining experience uh, more so than anything else we've mentioned so far. Yeah, I think this is like the only time that the name Mickey Mouse comes up with regards to to anything other than assuming that there would have been some of that involved in the museum and the animation department. And it's interesting because they even go so far in the presentation to say that they wanted to control that aspect of, of this project because they didn't want it to infringe on the overall natural street energy that they were going for. Yeah, I mean, they were very intentional and strategic about not only where things would go, but how you would get there. And and I almost sort of imagine this as a progressive type experience. And I'll link in the show notes to a photo of the concept art so you get a better understanding of where you would enter and how you would sort of go through these different environments before you even got to this sort of backstage, backlot area where also... That we we haven't even talked, like you said, about any Disney attractions. This is where the attractions would be located as well. So they were going to create a, a, a relative copy of the Great Movie Ride, which at the time was going to be called Great Moments at the Movies. They were also going to create a Star Tours-like simulator attraction that would teach you about the special effects in movies and maybe even be subjected to special effects as well. They were going to have a Superstar television show, which, again, was about what studio production of a um, a TV show or a sitcom would be like. And they were also going to have the Videopolis Dance Club, which was going to eventually be seen at Disneyland and then at Pleasure Island because they wanted to have a place, again, being conscious of serving all of the markets they wanted to have a place for teenagers to sort of call their own as well. So there'd be food and dancing, but it would have sort of this sci-fi theme to it as well. Yeah. And really, I mean, that's the extent of the, you know, quote unquote, original attractions that would have been a part of this. And I mean, there are other attraction things in, in the next area that you move in <laughs> after after that, which was the, the Burbank Ocean and Pier, but those were more of the, you know, things that you would traditionally find on a pier. Those ones that you just mentioned, the, you know, the movie-themed attractions, those three were really the only three that they had on the plans when they, when they presented the idea to Burbank. Yeah, and, you know, I, I wanted to be, <laughs> I wanted to save the pier and the ocean for last because this is where stuff gets interesting and a little bit weird, right? So again, I want to sort of give you an overview of what, where we are and what we have. And I want you to sort of envision this in your mind's eye. So you're going to enter through this either one major anchor store or in a retail shopping area. Um, there would be this huge Hollywood fantasy hotel in the middle of this property surrounded by these backlot areas that you could tour through there would be retail there there would be this you know original studio backlot that would all be sort of just regular non-disney um although i'm sure there'd be some disney non-disney retail shopping maybe even some dining as well 
in one corner you would have animation offices, you'd have a tour, TV studios, again with a tour, you'd have that great moments at the movie attraction. There would even be a movie theater in there as, uh, on the opposite side as well with like a 10 screen multiplex. And then you'd also have the shopping area. You'd have that Golden State Mall and that uh, upper floor of the, the clubs as well. But all the way in the back would be this crafted area known as the Burbank. It was called the Burbank Ocean, the Burbank Sea, a number of different names. Um, And this was meant to represent the old movie studios special effects water tank, which had now been converted for the enjoyment of guests by Disney. Yeah, this thing is incredible. (laughs) The first thing that comes to mind is and and. I swear I was like, I don't know, 20 some years old before I realized when we drive to the Contemporary Resort that we were driving under the water causeway (laughs) between, I don't know where I thought we were going, but it took forever for me to actually realize that, that we were driving under it. So think the way that that looks. And it was this, you know special effects tank but it was actually going to be located on top of a six-story parking garage and if you think about you know today we have these infinity spillover pools that people who are so lucky as to have these great views out the back of their house and the incline and the, the pool can run right off the edge that's what this Burbank ocean was supposed to be like it was only 18 inches deep on top of this parking garage but it would run right out over the over the side and create this giant waterfall and the waterfall would be what was seen from the freeway but for the people standing on the pier when you looked out it just looked like an ocean horizon a sunset and it totally blocked out that freeway it's brilliant it is brilliant and i would love to have seen that be executed somewhere you want to talk about using things like forced perspective and think about cars land with that fake facade of Cadillac Ridge blocking out, you know, the Denny's on the opposite side. This would have been spectacular to see. And I love the idea of not only, not only creating this view for the guests on the pier in terms of what was off in the distance, but creating the, the illusion on the opposite side to block out the parking garage by having this waterfall flowing down the side. Genius. I think it's genius. I would love to see that. Talk about a visual weenie for the people on the freeway. I mean, if you're driving past, if you literally could see it from the freeway, I'd have been like, what is that? Find the way (laughs) off. We're going over there to see what that thing is. Maybe that's why they didn't do it, because the lawyers were like, there's going to be way too many accidents on the five or whatever the freeway is. We can't have this, you know, attractive nuisance. Yeah. And it wasn't just something to view either. I mean, you could actually go out onto the water and um, and then also there was a Ferris wheel sunk into this somehow. <laughs> if you look at the concept art, when Lou gets it posted, you'll, you'll be able to see like this Ferris wheel looks like a coin stuck in a slot. So it, it's hard to tell from the way they describe it if this thing would have actually somehow gone under the water or if there was a slot in the the parking garage that it went down into uh, they made it it, it, it sounds like it was partially underground but it would still take you like six stories high um and you would almost sort of yeah. emerge out of the ocean you know into the 
again, not being clear exactly how from from the you know the the pencil sketch concept art. Um, but you know, Michael Eisner loved his Ferris wheel, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how many of these things have we talked about where there was a Ferris wheel incorporated in, <laughs> until they finally get one at California Adventure? Um, and, but yeah, know, in addition to the Ferris wheel, they had the the fun house that was supposed to actually be fun, is what they said. <laughs> a Disney-style fun house and bumper cars. With and a difference, a and I don't know what that rink. means. Bumper cars with a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I don't to me, if you bump into things, it's a bumper car. I don't know, but but yeah, and then a roller rink that would have been 1950s themed with um with a a dance floor in the middle, or, or and then a roller rink around outside of that. And which we had the crazy something like there. that at right something like that at at uh, Pleasure Island for a while, the the uh, Rock and Roller Dome. Yeah, and I never having been to that one. I was in a couple of the clubs at Pleasure Island, but not that one specifically. Did it have the 1957 flying Chevy that this one was supposed to have? I don't seem to remember the flying Chevy. Um, you know, but but now looking back, you know, with 2020 vision, um, you know, alcohol and roller skating, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> The lawyer in me comes yeah, out every so like often, like, right? <laughs> yeah, and then attached to this would have been a restaurant called The Deep End. And this place sounds crazy bonkers, too. The The whole club was supposed to be 1950s themed, and this one would have been like a 1950s pool. And when you look at the concept art, it looks like the tables are in the bottom of the pool. And the ceiling looks like you're under the water and there were supposed to be animatronics somehow suspended up there looking like they're swimming and diving into the water. And then beach balls floating were <laughs> the lights for the restaurant. I dig it, man. I, I Again, it's, you know, wild and wacky enough, um, you know, but I would love to have seen that in execution. Yeah, and then we know Michael Eisner loved Splash. Uh, I, I just think this is, I like Splash, but I, I think it's funny how into Splash he was. So there was going to be a place called Madison's Dive, and this would have been like a crab house, and you would have walked into it alongside the Burbank Ocean. You would have walked downstairs, down in, and it would have looked kind of similar to a Coral Reef at Epcot, where it looks like you know, you're sitting there right there next to the fish that were supposed to be in the Burbank Ocean, but were actually just giant aquariums pushed up against these fake windows. Yeah, he had. Um, and look, Michael Eisner still to this day is, you know, one of the people that I would love to interview for a lot of reasons. Right. I, I, I applaud the incredible work that he did. And I think it, it gets lost sometimes in the way that he left. But I also want to know his fascination with Splash because he loved it a lot remember splash mountain <laughs> is not named after the splash at the bottom it's it, it he wanted it to be called he wanted it to be themed after the movie splash um and it, it actually was tony baxter who's like you know splash doesn't quite fit into Frontierland, but if we sort of theme it this way we can still give you the name splash so everybody goes home happy but not necessarily confused 
although when Jim Varney did the opening, whatever. But yeah, that's how Splash Mountain got its name. So he clearly loves and, Splash or Daryl Hannah and or Tom, I mean, who doesn't love Tom Hanks? But well, and I I don't know about everyone else, but I clearly subconsciously think about Tom Hanks in the film Splash while I'm writing Splash Mountain. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> At some point, when I get to like everything is just going to be six degrees of Tom Hanks. It used to be Kevin Bacon, but I think Tom Hanks may be more relevant. Uh, and as wild and as wacky as these might sound, the fish out of water restaurant says, hold my Joe Rody. Yes, this place is hysterical. <laughs> this is where you would have gotten to ride out over the Burbank Ocean in the rowboat, but it would have been a motorized rowboat since you probably couldn't really get your oars all the way around in that 18 inches. And you ride out in the rowboat to this other small boat, very looks very similar to um, what's on the top of Mount Mayday at Typhoon Lagoon. Um, boat like that, hanging off the edge of the Burbank Ocean where that waterfall is. And you, you take your boat out there and you get out on this other boat. And as Joe Rody said, the story is something is wrong. And beef lives in the sea. <laughs> and this was going to be, they intended to be the best steakhouse in in Los Angeles, possibly California. It, it was supposed to have a great wine list. But when you go inside, everything is themed to a seafood restaurant. But it's not seafood that they're catching it's cattle and bison so the lobster traps hanging from the ceiling are like 12 feet long there's paintings on the wall of of you know cows jumping over the bows of boats like a dolphin there's images of they even mentioned like Jacques Cousteau you know with with his cattle that he's found in the sea and <laughs> but in all reality this place sounds like it would have been a fantastic view out there on the edge and you know you could have walked out to the the you know the front bow of that boat that was hanging off and seen you know views of the valley and everything as crazy as it sounds it also sounds like weirdly fantastic so just to make sure you understand at the edge of this six-story high faux waterfall that's covering the parking lot on the edge of the Burbank Ocean, there is this abandoned ship. In order for you to get there, you and your party have to get into a rowboat, which is not actually a road, but somehow takes you from the pier to the restaurant, and you think you're going for seafood, but instead it's a steakhouse. I literally am imagining Rody and Rothschild going, let's just come up with like the wackiest thing ever and let's just see if they go for it. And then they do and are like, oh, wait, no, we were only kidding. Like, this is not, this is, this can't be it. But it would have had this bar and this balcony again with, you know, beautiful views of the valley. Um, again, I would love to have seen a little bit more in terms of modeling and concept art of what this would be. And, if it could ever be executed on, like would this concept go somewhere or would it just be just way too confusing to people um, to, to think that they were going to a seafood restaurant and instead all they serve is steak. 
Yeah, I mean, it is funny to listen to Joe present it because you're right. You do wonder when you're listening to him, like, is he just is he just trolling all of us <laughs> with this? And at the end of it, he even says, he's like, I must get on my knees before you and beg you. I want this to be an existing thing. <laughs> like, part of me says, he, you know, he loves crazy stuff. Maybe it was all legitimate or maybe it was just, yeah, let's, let's dream the wild dream. <laughs> Let's see what they'll green light. I think that's what it is. I think him and Rothschild have a bet. Like, all right, let's who's gonna come up with the wackiest idea that actually gets approved? And I think that's why we yeah, want to, and, to save this one for last. Yeah, and it actually was funny recently. Someone brought this up to him on Twitter, and he said that they should have named it the mistake restaurant. <laughs> So, so look, we've got, you know, we've got these concepts. We have what on paper sounds like a, a, a really smart idea, right? So you've got this retail shopping area in the middle of Burbank, which brings in revenue and traffic for retailers. It gives a destination for locals to go. You have a hotel, so you also bring in not just out-of-state guests, but even guests in-state who may not have traveled to Burbank otherwise, but now have a destination to stay. You've got movie theaters, you've got entertainment, you've got family-friendly stuff. You have these real working animation offices and studios. You have Disney attractions. You have this pier, with which is you know, just wacky enough to be different than anything else you'd find in California. So on paper, right? You also have great story, like with the backlog. So on paper, it makes total sense. And, you know, contracts have been signed, but this is really when things, I was going to say, go off the rails. They go off, you know, the six-story waterfall a little bit. Yeah, I mean, in all this time, while they're developing these plans, they do still continue continue to have contention with Universal. I mean, even to the point of uh, Burbank residents were getting flyers. They got like four rounds of flyers um, with pictures of, you know, on the front, nice, happy picture of Sleeping Beauty Castle. And then on the inside, all these photos of crappy T-shirt shops and other touristy things. They're like, well, do you want this in your town? And you know, from the friends of Burbank and later on down the road, NCA and Universal admit that they actually were the ones who financed all of those flyers that got sent out. And then in the process, MCA tries to file two different lawsuits to get this stopped, one of which gets thrown out. And um, Eisner and Scheinberg, the president of MCA, actually even have a meeting at one point. And they meet at a, a restaurant, a hotel there in Hollywood and they had agreed that they weren't going to discuss what they met about. But then after the fact, it ends up getting leaked to the LA times that they were trying to come up with potentially a way to combine forces in Orlando and, and see if there was a way to do something jointly and kind of, you know, bury the hatchet on both of these projects. And, what Disney came to Universal with was, well, we'll pay you a royalty, but we don't want any sort of partnership with you. And Universal said, well, then no, we don't want any part of that. 
So they both moved forward with their individual parks in in Orlando, and Universal still kind kind of continues to contend the one lawsuit there in Burbank. Right, because well, at the same we're... time, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was saying because because you know keep in mind that the the I don't want to call it the war, but you know the ongoing battles between Universal MCI. MCA and Disney have been going on for quite a while, right? This is not just about Burbank. This is about Universal coming down to Florida and Universal wanting to expand their own offerings in, you know, the Hollywood area and also believing that there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Like, how does Disney get this kind of a deal? Like, it doesn't necessarily make sense you know then even things like um you know parking was being brought up in terms of who should be paying for parking there were lawsuits about blackmail um that mca filed against disney and this was sort of the the first snowball rolling down of not just legal issues but but other issues as well yeah i mean when they really started to look at the numbers on the whole project uh, which if you're like me and you're someone who enjoys stats and numbers and and some of that dry stuff um harrison buzzed price who did most of the feasibility studies for numerous dis- like most disney projects the economic feasibility studies you can actually find most of those that he did online um a university in florida has put them all up for you to be able to look at the actual original copies. But he did the feasibility study for them and they were up to over a 600 plus million dollar cost on this location. And when he did the study in September of 87, it just, I mean, there, it, it wasn't feasible. The, the crowd was not there for them to be able to spend the kind of money it was going to take to build a place that Disney felt comfortable building. And once they started to cut things out, like the first thing that was going to have to go was the Burbank ocean. And they felt like once you start cutting some of these things out, is this really a Disney project anymore? Are we really offering Burbank something that, that a traditional mall wouldn't be able to offer them? You know, it almost seems and there's never been any sort of, you know, accusation that there was any sort of, you know, collusion. But but all of a sudden, all these different things start working against Disney, right? So it's the MCA lawsuits. They're accusing Disney executives of blackmail. Now, all of a sudden, MGM United Artists comes out and says, well, Disney, you have no right to use any MGM properties outside of Orlando and we're going to do just so you know we're putting you on notice we're going to do anything and everything in our power to make sure you don't and Eisner's like no we're within our rights and we already plan to use these MGM names and other projects overseas and again there are these mounting not just financial hurdles but there are these legal hurdles as well and look and with some of the financial ones and having to scale some things back all of a sudden now, and you don't, you know, nobody knows why, but some of the major retailers that had originally committed are now backing out. So Harrods, Mitsukoshi of Japan, 
who had expressed interest maybe all of a sudden don't have interest anymore. And between the rising costs, the scaling back, the potential lawsuits and everything else going on, you know, it it seems that the death knell is starting to sound. Yeah, and and actually, I had the the wrong date there. It wasn't September that they had that economic review. It was in February because on February 18th, Eisner actually went to the shareholders meeting and told the told the shareholders, "We're still planning to do this in Burbank. It's just it's 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 been put on the back burner." Because at the same time, they're working on MGM in Florida. They're working on Euro Disney. They're still kind of, you know, starting to have ideas about Westcott projects that they're looking at. And, and he says, you know, Burbank's still a priority, but it's not as much of a priority as this. And then the next day on February 19th is when they go and look at that, that feasibility report. And they're starting to come up on their 12-month date, you know, in a couple months of this of when they're able to back out of the deal with Burbank, which then they ultimately, after over 22,000 man hours and two and a half million dollars spent on development, they end up withdrawing. Right, because all of a sudden they realize that when you take all these elements out, it's not a Disney project anymore, right? It's a regular retail shopping and dining district when you you take out that Disney difference and aren't able to exceed guest expectations, which is what Disney does and what sets it apart. Now, all of a sudden, it doesn't make any sense. And like you said, they're already looking at places like Long Beach, which we talked about in the, the past show that we did. They're starting to look into uh, building uh, Euro Disney, Disneyland Paris. Um, and I think the the financials not just in terms of the revenue invested but the revenue lost as well as the potential uphill legal battles going on made it just you know uh, it, it unfeasible for it to go forward yeah and it's interesting after this because the the people of burbank i mean the the council members and especially the one who had approached eisner in the first place and mary lou howard she mentions you know being basically heartbroken when this falls through and that they had really high hopes for this and now here they are back at square one again of their lots going to sit empty and one of them even goes so far as to say well let's see if mca comes running now which Obviously, you can you can look at Google Earth today. It's kind of funny because I just pulled it up today, and there's a mall there called Town Center, which is you know the original plan that they had clear back before they even ever approached Disney. Yeah, and look, you know, no good idea at Disney ever dies. So I think when you know California Adventure was being initially conceptualized. Um, they looked at the Burbank back lots, right? Obviously, the pier and the boardwalk came over. Eisner gets his Ferris wheel. Um, the man-made lake is there. Um, you know, even now uh, with the lamplight, you you do you are able to sort of go and sort of sit down, almost sort of on top of the water, or just or literally sort of water side. Um, you know, and and the Ferris wheel. Um, and the coaster, the Incredicoaster, coaster, dipped down into that lake the same way the Ferris wheel was originally conceptualized for what uh, Burbank was going to do. 
Yeah, and obviously some of these things, you know, like we mentioned earlier, were being developed in tandem for Pleasure Island and for MGM Studios. So, you know, we we end up, you know, once MGM Studios opens, we do see Superstar Television and the Great Movie Ride and the use of simulators and and at Pleasure Island you see Adventurers Club and Mannequins and the and the roller rink one that you mentioned. So yeah, I mean there obviously was a lot of development that went into it, but it was it was some of it was at least potentially co-development or able to be pivoted towards something else. Yeah, look, this is not the first nor the last time uh, you shall pass this way again because Disney, they try and go into the retail space again. You know, we talked recently about uh, Disney Quest, uh, not just the one in Walt Disney World, but the one that is in was in Chicago. They were going to build one in Philadelphia. They were going to uh, at one point they had plans to go into Times Square and create an an urban type shopping, dining, entertainment experience much like this without having to go, you know, to a destination like Florida or Anaheim and stay for a week. Um, Obviously, Disney Quest, any of those iterations either were not profitable and ended up closing or did not get very far off the ground. And it it sounds like they haven't still been able to crack the code of building a shopping, dining, retail, entertainment space that is not necessarily connected to a Disney theme park. Um, And you can look at all the theme parks around the world, whether it's downtown Disney, Disney Springs, uh, or even in some of the uh, overseas parks, some of the shopping areas there as well. Well, yeah, it's interesting to even kind of look at the relative lack of popularity of something like the NBA experience. I mean, I haven't personally been there, but I, you know, I, I see that they're struggling to get people engaged in that environment. And even when you're right there next to a park, you know, it's, it's curious, you know, would something like that have done better? somewhere else where you're not already paying a gate fee to get into the park and maybe you're in an entirely different city and Disney runs it and you know you're just paying the fee to get into that experience but yeah it's it's kind of surprising all these I, I find it surprising all these years later that something that they weren't able to accomplish something like this I mean clearly they've been able to figure out how to to harness the being a landlord with regards to the the other businesses that are located at Disney Springs because I mean the retail side is very successful right but I think and I think really the question and the the answer that they have not been able to come up with yet and I, and I think Michael Eisner had it right is what can Disney do that's going to exceed guest expectations they expect a lot and our experience with Disney is one of not meeting our expectations but actually exceeding them so i think the question is can something like this can a retail uh dining shopping disney-fied place exist somewhere outside a disney theme park right and, and if so where do you think it can and should go and it's it has to sort of tick all those boxes right i think it has to appeal to the local population while still being able to attract guests both in state and even potentially out of state. So 
where does that exist and how is it able to do that? How is it able to exceed guest expectations? I don't know that I have the answer to it. I would love to hear from you, the listener, where you think that can or should go. You can email me. You can call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. I'd love for you to come to our Facebook group and talk about it there at www.radio.com slash community. I'll post that question there as well. Yeah, I, I <laughs> personally, I live in the Midwest, so You'd I like would to love see to Midwest, see something right? <laughs> Disney ordered in the Midwest. But at the same time, I'm also someone who every activity I go to do, I ask myself, well, do I want to spend money on this if it means it's going to take away something from my next Disney vacation? And I'm always weighing that. And if I'm looking at doing something Disney light, like I'm not sure that I would, you know, I mean, to your point, I'm not sure I would spend the money on the travel and the ticket, you know, when I get there. Uh, I don't know. It would probably depend on the year. You know, consumer spending and consumer experiences have changed a lot from the 90s you know take a look at all of the abandoned malls that at one point was where we as kids or young adult like that's where we went to hang out it's where as adults we went to shop look i live in central florida they are abandoned i had to go to one of the the remnants of the mall the other day because that's where the dmv is in one of the former uh, um, you know, anchor retail stores and it's a ghost town. I mean, there's like two or three stores in the mall. Why? Because how do we do our shopping now? It's that's not the entertainment shopping hangout place that we go. Um, you know, so maybe it couldn't, maybe it can't survive now. I think this makes for a very interesting conversation and, and one that I would like to continue uh, both in the in the discussion forums. We'll also talk about this on our next WW Radio Live on Wednesday nights on Facebook at www.radiolive.com, 7.30 Wednesday night. Um, Kendall, I think this was fascinating because I think so little is known, uh, certainly talked about what might have been in Burbank. I will tell you personally, you know, I see the map, I see the concept art, and I get excited for what might have been. Um, as somebody who doesn't live in Burbank, I don't know how often I would have gotten there, but on paper, uh, it, it seemed like an amazing idea, certainly for the time frame that it was conceived of. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely an interesting, interesting trip, dive into research, and and to look at that concept art, I encourage everybody to go out and do some searching and and look at the pictures. Look, you know, find find the video because some of it's just hard to imagine just hearing it. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, I'll post the concept art uh, at www.radio.com in the podcast show notes. Just go to the site, click on this week's podcast, you'll find them there. And like you said, there is a video because what they actually did was they actually a uh, public access television uh, actually broadcast the pitch that Disney and Joe Rody gave to the city of Burbank and I'm amazed that such a things exist because it really allows, I think this is the only time that I can think of that, you know, we as guests can sort of sit there as flies on the wall at an actual Disney pitch meeting for certainly for something of this size and scope. Yeah. They need to release some of these on Disney plus. <laughs> the Probably quality... not soon to make it on there, but this is the concept. 
content we need. <laughs> right. The quality of the video is not awesome, but it doesn't matter. And just go watch it for young Joe Rody um, and the seafood restaurant that only serves steak alone. So, well, this has uh, been a lot of fun. This has been, uh, Kendall. If tell me where um, anybody can, if they have any questions for you, where they, can they connect with you online? Um, you can find me in the Box People group um, on on the WW Radio Facebook page. If you want to read any of my content, it's you can search for my author page on the WW Radio blog. And then you can find me on Twitter. As I said last time, if you're interested in my random and sparse musings, um, you can find me at KL underscore Foreman, F-O-R-E-M-A-N on Twitter. And we have these have been a lot of fun uh, going back in time to see what might have been. Uh, I know we have some other ideas for stuff we want to cover in the future. So thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. All right, wait, what's the one, what's the, if you can visit, if you can make the Disney MGM Burbank experience or reality, where would be the one place you would go? I I would sit in the California Canyon. (laughs) I just, I'm a sucker for the, for plants. I mean, one of my favorite places in the world is to go to botanical gardens. So I I love Polynesian resort for the plant life and the water and the, you know, the ambiance. And that's where you would find me at Burbank. I'd be in the California Canyon. Yeah, and I want to know from you, the listener, what part of the Burbank Studios appeals most to you? What What's the one thing that you wish would become a reality? Again, go to www.radio.com slash community. I'll post that question there. I think I, I mean, you, you would think I'd go right to the restaurant, but I, I like this idea of the whole backlot shopping area and like seeing an old navy or spencer gifts in sort of this western town or this you know egyptian town might have been interesting i, I figured we'd find you in the ginza probably area. probably i'd also like to go to the the restaurant where all of the props sort of come to life that has a very mystic manner type of feel to it you, and you loved adventurers I, I was only lucky enough to be there one time for about It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes what you see, hear, taste, or remember. If you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Of course, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week we were talking and thinking a lot about Epcot and World Showcase and how it all connected back to Walt's original vision for International Street and then the Epcot Community of Tomorrow and really how his imprint is still felt and seen everywhere in the parks. So of course I had to ask you a question about Walt and his connection to a park that he never saw completed. And your question last week was to tell me what in Walt Disney World was, is affectionately referred to as Walt's Last Laugh. I want to first start by thanking all of you who entered, got this one correct, and knew that the answer is the Country Bear Jamboree. Now, let me give it, explain to you why it's known as Walt's Last Laugh. 
Walt Disney's passing in late 1966 really came as a surprise to everyone, including and especially his employees and Imagineers. And just days before uh, he ended up going to the hospital, he was at the studios, as he always was, talking to his employees about things like the Jungle Book and Pirates of the Caribbean. And of course, a lot about this Florida project, which would eventually become Walt Disney World. And what Walt would do was oftentimes just spontaneously drop into rooms of some of the different Imagineers to chat and see what they were working on. And Mark Davis was one of Walt's early animators, one of his nine old men who Walt had brought into the theme park business. And at the time, he was working on an animatronics musical show for a park that was supposed to be called Mineral King that would have been built in Northern California, obviously, which ended up becoming the Country Bear Jamboree. As Walt was chatting with Mark, uh, he looked at some of his sketches of bears playing musical instruments, etc., and burst out laughing, like hysterically laughing, and told Mark that, you know, I think we really have something here. We've got a winner with all these musical bears. And when Walt turned to leave, he said goodbye, Mark, which was surprising because he never really said goodbye. He always said so long or you know, have a great weekend, never the words goodbye, and unfortunately it was a few days later that Walt passed, and Mark and his fellow Imagineers really believed this was the last really good laugh that Walt Disney ever had, and it's why the Country Bear Jamboree will forever be known, affectionately, as Walt's last laugh. So I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and again last week we were playing for all of my digital products, my 102 ways to save money for an at Walt Disney World book, all seven of my audio walking tours of the history, details, secrets, and stories of the Magic Kingdom, recorded in 3D binaural sound, so it's as if you and I are walking through the Magic Kingdom land by land for about eight or nine hours or so, and really talking about not just the history of the park, but the details, the symbolism, and the significance. You can find all the guides and the books on Amazon and Apple iTunes. You can also go to www.radio.com and find them there. I'm also going to send the winner a WW Radio vinyl sticker, a Magic Band cover, and a mystery prize from my personal collection. I am currently in the process of it's time to share what I have in my garage and in my closets because I am out of space and I am out of room. And that's why I have been listing 10 new items every single week on eBay. Every Sunday, auctions begin at end. 9 p.m. Eastern, starting at $1 opening bid, no reserve, everything from Walt Disney World, theme park items, art, book, collectibles, Star Wars items from the 70s and beyond. You can find everything at www.radio.com slash eBay, but I'm going to pull one of those items, add that to the mystery prize, and last week's winner, randomly selected, is Nancy Pruitt. So, Nancy, congratulations. You use the online form. I will get your prize back at you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, obviously, as you know, that many of the windows on Main Street USA, on the second and third stories, even a few on doors, have names painted on them to honor people who were instrumental in the design, development, and really the prosperity of Walt Disney World and the Disney Company as a whole. And in addition to being one of Disney's, I think, most cherished honors, it also gives us as guests an insight into some of the people behind the scenes who helped make the magic happen. So the question this week is to tell me, who was honored with the highest window on all of Main Street USA? 
Now you have until Sunday, May 31st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com, click on the podcast link, go to this week's show notes. There you'll find the form. Again, you're going to play not just for the 102 Ways book, all seven of the audio tours, the vinyl sticker, the Magic Band cover, but I'm also going to go and throw in another mystery prize from my collection. Also, don't forget that if you enjoy Disney trivia and playing games, Every single day on my Instagram stories at Instagram.com slash I have daily Disney trivia. It's easy. It's fun. It's multiple choice. Takes just a couple of seconds to play. Test your knowledge and maybe even learn something along the way. Again, that is at Instagram.com slash So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I hope you had fun, learned something new, and maybe hopefully the show brought you a little bit of happiness and Disney magic to your day and your week. I wanted to continue and go on, so please don't forget to also join me every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for www.radiolive.com where I share my top five live where you can be part of creating your own list, calling in Disney news, your questions and comments and calls again every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com. Also, I want you to continue to be part of the community and conversation. Go to www.radio.com slash community and join our group on Facebook. Speaking of community, I want to thank some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family. I sincerely appreciate your love, support, and friendship and help. And I also love being able to give back to you and say thank you to you each and every month. I want to thank some new and longtime members like Ryan Verheller, Julie Delaramich, Charlton O'Neill, Tom Foster, I'll assume no relation to Tim, Kyle Bollmeyer, Chris Brown, and Tacey Atkinson. Thank you again so much. If you want to find out how you can help the show and get exclusive rewards every month, including scavenger hunts, trivia quests, access to our private Facebook group, custom Magic Band covers, logo gear, t-shirts, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World, exclusive live video group calls, and lots more. You can visit www.radio.com support. Again, remember, it's completely optional, but it's a great way for you to help show your support for WW Radio. And remember that a portion of the proceeds of your contributions do go to our Dream Team project to directly benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the show, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com, or call the voicemail. Be heard on the air at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WW1. You can also connect with me on social. I am at Lou Mangello on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and LinkedIn. And be sure you like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Radio. And again, as much as I love connecting with you online, I still believe, now more than ever, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. I know those are sort of on hold for a while, but that's why we're continuing to do our virtual Meet of the Month. Our next one is going to be Sunday, May 31st at 8 p.m. We'll get together on a Zoom call. I'll also simulcast it on Facebook as well to learn more and to RSVP. It's completely free, open to everybody, and of course, 100% family friendly. You can visit www.radio.com slash events. Also stay tuned as time goes on and things start getting back to Hopefully, some semblance of normalcy. Look for other WW Radio events, cruises. We have our Marvel Day at Sea coming up this January. Other meetups on the road as I travel to speak at conferences and schools. 
if you have an event that maybe you've had to take online and go virtual, I also do a lot of speaking virtually, including lessons that we can learn from Disney on customer service, what we can learn and implement from the Disney parks and our businesses, the importance of community, leadership from Walt Disney, social media, live video, podcasting, the power of community building, and lots more. Again, you can visit loumangelo.com. And there you can also find out how I can try and help you, whether it's with one-on-one mentoring. We still have one spot left for our weekly group mastermind calls every Thursday night. And then stay tuned for more information about our upcoming Momentum Weekend Workshop this October in Walt Disney World. Speaking of Walt Disney World, as you're starting to see things open up and really starting to plan for upcoming vacations, whether it's to world, land, or any destination, please don't forget about our friends over at MEI and Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider. I think we really see the importance of having a travel planner that can not only help you make reservations, answer questions, but really assist you if and when things go wrong. Not only that, Becky and her team of her agents give you the best possible prices all available discounts with an amazing level of personal service that is their hallmark and it all comes at no cost to you. You can find out more, get a free, no obligation quote at mousefantravel.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening to this or your favorite episode. Share it if you can on Facebook or Instagram. And if you can, please take just 30 seconds to rate and review the show over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to you, we have more than 2,500 five-star reviews. Really need for them to keep on coming. I want to first thank Jay Eyes, who says, this podcast has it all. I've really been enjoying the podcast as somebody who's grown up with Disney annual passes as a child, going at least twice a month to getting APs as an adult. Disney is my ultimate happy place and will always be. This podcast literally brings that magic to me when I can't be there. It's extremely informative lighthearted and allows me to feel like I'm right at Disney even when I'm not it's brightened my every single day for me since I started listening I can't recommend it enough for my fellow Disney lovers M Slate 61 says it's so enjoyable my favorite episodes are with Becky love the banter Heather A Jean Maywood says it's the best podcast ever I love 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 the WW radio show so fun to hear about the various aspects of Walt Disney World Lou never runs out of great topics. Lou's positivity is contagious, and he always puts me in a good mood. It's exactly the whole intention. I also love the park music playing in the background. His guests are fun to listen to as well, especially little Timmy Foster. I appreciate Lou's encouragement to all his listeners. Thank you, Heather from Milwaukee. And Rosa Mindy says, I'm changing my review after changing my attitude. There was a time that I preferred the the edgy, snarky podcast with tons of criticism over the light, happy, open quote, find the good in everything style. But then I woke up and I discovered that if I want love and happiness in my life, I actually have to seek it out and welcome it when it's offered. Lou offers this in spades. His heart is so big and his caring and enjoyment of his Disney community is so deep and authentic. It comes across in every one of his podcasts, even with challenges and bad news everywhere we look. Lou and his friends make me feel that I'm not alone and there's still our original love of each other and everything Disney lifts up and puts pulls us together. If you want criticism, yeah, there are some of those podcasts out there, but personally, I love this one and this community because it achieves what a visit to Walt Disney World does. It brings me joy. Rosa Mindy, that review, that message fills my heart because what you feel is exactly what I hope this show and this community that you have built done. So Rosa Mindy, Heather, 
M. Slate and J.I.s, thank you so, so, so very much. Your words and your time mean so very much to me. Again, just search for WW Radio in Apple Podcasts or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes. It'll show you exactly how and where to leave a review. Finally, and really most importantly, thank you, thank you, thank you. I understand how valuable your time is and the fact that you spend and share it with me and together as part of the community means the world to me. I hope that this show has made your day happier, maybe inspired you to be a little better and brought a little bit of positivity uh, into your day and week because I think that um, is a thing that is also contagious and really most important. So choose the good, look for and find the good in everything that you do and I hope that this really is your best week ever stay happy stay positive stay optimistic so until next time see ya hey lou it's gabby naldo from columbia maryland um i'm just leaving the hospital now getting off work and i just wanted to give a quick shout out to deanna and the wdw radio running team we had our first um zoom team meeting last night And it was awesome seeing everyone, and I just wanted to say thank you to everyone last night who um, said they had thought of me or thanked me um, for doing what I do, and it was nice to feel that love from my Blue Team family and just to feel really appreciated and supported. Um, So that's all. Thank you so much for all you do. Everybody stay safe and be well and have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flowertown, Pennsylvania. I'm hoping you can hear me. I'm out walking. I finally have a dog staying with me. Yay. So we're out for a walk. It's May 18th at, oh, what time is it? 7.30 7.30 at night. Beautiful day here in Pennsylvania. It's been a beautiful past three or four days. And what do I have to say? I'm a little behind. I have no idea, no idea how that happened. I just listened to um, your top ten pavilions with Tim Foster, and somehow I missed the emails um, with Becky. So i got to go back and listen to that. i got some homework. Anyway, I'm just loving life. I'm thinking things are going to start to open up here a little bit. I've been getting a lot of people calling me, which is a good sign as far as traveling goes. And I'm excited to get back to it. I made a countdown poster to my cruise in January. And Jackie is my MEI Mouse travel agent, and she's been wonderful because I have switched things around on her a lot, and she's been nothing but gracious and lovely and professional. And I love her. So shout out to Jackie. Uh, what else can I say? I feel like I haven't talked to any of you in a long time. I try to um, touch base with everybody on Wednesday night, but for some reason I feel like I've been so busy Wednesday night. What, doing what? I have no idea. Well, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to go listen to a listener email with Becky. And everyone had a glorious, wonderful week. And make somebody smile. Take care. See you all on the box Wednesday night. I'm going to make it this week. Bye.